0: Hello and welcome to Healing from Within. I am your host, Cheryl Glick, author of Life is No Coincidence and The Living Spirit, Answers for Healing and Infinite Love, which shares stories of spiritual awakening, spiritual communication, healing energies, miracles, and ways to utilize your intuition for greater health and prosperity. Today I welcome Amy Ballen, author of Fabulous to Framed, which shares with us something that is happening all too often, where an innocent person is arrested simply because the police are called, and there's been an increase in the number of women being arrested and of being falsely accused by the perpetrator. Hello, Amy, and thank you for joining us today to discuss what in these troubled, challenging times has become a new problem in our culture. Hi, Cheryl, and thank you so much for having me today as a guest. Wonderful. Amy, as listeners of Healing from Within have come to know, my guests and I share our intimate, truthful experiences and insights so we may begin to know ourselves, who we are, and how life functions on both a spiritual or an energetic level and also on the physical level. And the purpose is to find ways to align ourselves to the universal laws of energy so we can begin to handle the challenges in this physical world and create our best version of life using intuition and higher awareness. In today's episode of Healing from Within, Amy Ballin, who works with the Innocence Project, will, will share how naive she was about the justice system until she was falsely accused and arrested. Mandatory arrest laws in 30 states which require someone be arrested if the police are called. There's been an increase of women. Between 30 to 40% are arrested on domestic violence calls, yet the conviction rates remain at 95% men. It's an epidemic. This second level of victimization can really ruin a person's life. So, Amy, I always love to ask my guests to think back to their childhood and remember a person, a place, or event that may have led to the experiences and decisions in their adult life and perhaps created or added to the values and lifestyle they live now. So think back to your childhood life.
1: Well, I can tell you right off the bat that probably I was a very – naive child. I was a very trusting child. I was not taught to be suspect of people. And I think in retrospect, that was probably my biggest downfall was not to question things and to believe in the good. There was no bad. And it never it never dawned on me how naive I really was, although I was 49 when the incident happened. You know, hindsight being twenty twenty, I probably should never have allowed my ex husband to stay in my home one last night, and I knew that in my gut. But because I was raised the way I was raised, I I just simply was like, well, nothing bad will happen.
0: Well, you know something, a lot of girls are raised that way, even today, with so much happening and so much on the news. Uh, it's I just thought girls are supposed to cooperate. We're supposed to be good and we're supposed to be nurturing and we're not supposed to say no. So that has to change because we have to be aware uh, that we, we need to protect ourselves against negative energies, negative thoughts, negative people. It is a process that can be learned and we want to think the best. Of course we do. We want to be positive and loving, but still we need to be alert to something that could be dangerous for us. Amy, something happened in your senior year of high school where there was a break from uh, your parents. So perhaps something in your family life also was present within you, perhaps a fear of something that allowed you to get involved with a man who ultimately caused you so much trouble. So think back to your high school that year and what happened and who you lived with because you learned a lot from those people.
1: Actually, when I left home my senior year, I'll tell you, part of everything that happened to me growing up as a child made me the person I became and had to become at 49 years old in order to prepare me the skills and the life, the life skills that I needed to survive what I was going to go through to, you know, ultimately go through. When I moved out of my parents' house, and it's because I was the black sheep and, you know, I I was under very strict rules with my parents because I I was the middle child, I was the only girl. My parents were very conservative and we were living in Southern California, so it was, you know, that old mentality from Pennsylvania, it didn't work very well in California. So when uh-huh. I, I agree. When I, I quote-unquote ran away, um, I ran away to my best friend's house who was in Pacific Palisades. So I went from Brentwood to Pacific Palisades, which I kind of laugh. Well, that's not really running away. It's like Bel Air to Beverly Hills. And, um, I actually lived with a federal court judge. My best friend's mother was a federal court judge in LA and a very prominent one at that. And I learned a lot from her. Um, you know, especially when she would come home and talk about these high profile cases like the notorious DIG or, you know, uh, Todd, Todd Bridges, uh, who played Willis on, um, Oh, it's the TV show. I can't think. Different strokes. Mm-hmm. And we I learned a lot about how she would handle criminal court. Little did I know one day I'd be in criminal court. I, I mean, I never thought. I thought that was the fantasy world. But... So I learned a lot, but I think everything that happened as a child for me prepared me for what would happen one day so I could be Ab- strong. Yeah,
0: you know, yeah, absolutely. You picked your family, your parents, your gender, uh, your, your order as the middle child, absolutely. and living away with these uh, this other families, which you really loved, and you're still friends with, Karen, And um, yep. because life is not random. Our soul is here to achieve a greater awareness and awakening and raising and refining of energy. So everything that happens in our life, good and bad, I try not to see it as good or bad. I try to see it just as experiences that our soul has chosen and the people we meet who inspire and guide us, they're there for a reason too. So I'm going to Absolutely. say you were supposed to live there, and you, your father perhaps was uh, like my father. I'm a middle child also, <laughs> so <laughs> so the, my 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 parents were uh, um, very conservative and uh, followed the rules. And uh, you know, my father was a perfectionist, so uh, I oh think my he
1: God, you grew up you're in a,
0: my father. Yes, we grew up in the same type of environment. I went on to become an intuitive Reiki master teacher and healer and medium and author of books about energy and understanding life on both a physical and an energetic basis. So the childhood I had and the difficulties I had, like yours, were part of our life plan and destiny. And so we can right? see it as good because it brought us to where we have to be. So I like that description you gave. Now, let's get back to what was your life before and after your domestic violence incident?
1: My life before, you know, I I had moved to Florida when I was 24. Again, breaking the rules against my parents' dismay. You know, they thought I should stay in Brentwood and go to the country club and, and, you know, get married. And that should have been my life. I chose to become a sales trainer in Florida, which I had never been here. And I got in my car and drove across the United States. And you know, I, I was a sales trainer for a major weight loss company and I thought I was on top of the world. And of course I met my nice husband to be from New York, which is, just, I think the sixth borough of New York. Florida and uh, I ended up moving to New York and we had kids and so we came back down in, in 94 and it was in 95 we got divorced and I got into real estate development so I was in real estate development a single mother for 20 years before I met my husband my second husband and he was the opposite of everything I dated for the you know past 20 years before I remarried and that was a very strong, successful, and, you know, very, very, uh, a peer of mine is what I would normally date. And I thought, you know, it's been 20 years. I need to do something different. So I meet this nice guy from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I own my own home. I built my own home, and I'm driving my Mercedes, and life is perfect. I've raised two kids, and nothing bad was ever going to happen to me and so at some well... point.
0: You know, I think he was to you an oddity and like a diamond in the rough. You know, he was different from everybody you knew. And he didn't show you any reason not to take him seriously or to think that there was something dark in his past or whatever. And and as I say, we do seem to want to trust everyone we meet until they give us a reason not to. So I well, think that is the right him. thing, A right way to be, trusting for the most part, loving for the most part. Right. But let's go right. on to why did you decide to write this book?
1: So what precipitated the book writing was when I got arrested the night of my arrest, I was absolutely flabbergasted that this could actually happen. I called the police, and while I was on the phone, he came downstairs with a wound that didn't exist. He's six feet, and I'm 5'4". I've never been arrested. I'm 49, and he runs outside, tells everybody who's a former cop, I get arrested. And the night I got arrested and got my charge, which was one under manslaughter, I said, I will never take a plea. I will absolutely not plead guilty. I'm going to plead innocent to this. Even if I have to go to prison, I am never going to admit to this because I didn't do this. Uh, it was too much of a, an incredulous thought that I'd ever have to plead guilty to something I could never do. So after it was all over and expunged and nothing happened to him, and that's another conversation, I decided that what I needed to do, finding out about the truth and the reality of getting the victim revictimized in, a, in another arrest and domestic violence survivor, there's no place to go. And this is a very, I'd say this, the scariest, silent part of domestic violence. So I wrote a book.
0: Well, let me let me ask you something. Our listeners don't quite uh, know what happened. You have to tell what happened. What he did to you. You let him stay in your condo one last night. You were getting a divorce yeah. already. You went out right. to dinner, and you, you you were uncomfortable about letting him stay there, but you did because he had not experienced violence with you before this even, even though you, you saw he was irresponsible in many ways and you no longer wanted to be in the marriage so tell us what happened what he did to okay. you uh, well I didn't know how much detail you wanted so what happened was we went
1: to dinner he had moved every article of clothing out of our home he had just he was waiting to move into his new place and things had gotten pretty contentious and he wanted to stay over that night, and I was very uncomfortable. I had a very gnawing feeling, and I guess I called out your gut. And I just went against what I felt, and even though I thought I shouldn't, I felt bad for him because he had a child in the hospital, and that was part of the reason we were getting divorced. And I just was like, well, you know, he's, he's suffering from that. He's suffering from losing me. I'm going to let him stay. So he had Bioware and everything I owned and that night we got back and I started texting somebody and he's like "Who, who are you texting and I said nobody so he goes to the bathroom he comes out he beelines it for me and gets on top of me literally he's pushing all my pressure points and I'm holding the phone like the holy grail and he is like, Me, me, and 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 the neck holds, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, you're 118 pounds. This is 225. Are you really going to hold on to this phone? So I let go of the phone. He jumps off the bed. He starts reading the text, and he throws it against the, the bedside table, at which point I jump up to get the phone, and he pushes me down to the floor and puts a knee in my back. I have the phone at least. Didn't didn't he choke you
0: around your neck because your neck was red? That part. Pushed you to the floor. Your your knees were bruised. We're getting to that? Yeah. We're getting to that. We're getting to that.
1: So he he grabs the phone again. I lose from his grip. I go to the kitchen because all I'm thinking is I've got to get his keys so he can never enter this condo ever again. And as I enter the kitchen, he grabs me. Pushes me down to the wood floor, puts a knee in my back. He's got me in a cough hold, which means he has his thumb on my side of my neck to cut the airway off. His hand is pushing my head to the floor. Literally, I thought he was going to like bust my head open. I, I was. No, of I don't course. Know,
0: but I, yes, it's violence, terrifying. Yeah. And he,
1: when he, got, when he, when he got up, I must have come to, and I got up in pajamas. And I see him open the sliding glass doors and he's a baseball player. And he throws his arm back. He throws my phone as hard as he can, at which point I run out and I call the police. And I'm hysterical in my pajamas, no shoes, nothing, no blood on my night, night shirt, nothing. And all of a sudden I hear this ruffling in the background. And I hear, did she call the cops? Because he had to validate I made the call before he made his, his next comment. And the concierge said, yes, she called the police. He said, good, calling an ambulance. She stabbed me with the knife. Now, I'm still on the call with 911. And you hear me say, oh, my God, he stabbed himself. Oh, my God, somebody has to get the knife. My prints aren't on it. So he goes outside, he meets the first responder, and everybody knew that he was next cop. And what I found really interesting, and I'm just going to add this as a side note, the building that this incident happened, and thank God I had sold a condo to the guy I was renting from. I sold that condo pre-construction, before it was ever built. That's what I do for a living. Not one person knew that I sold that condo. But I knew a lot of those owners in that building. And I thought, hmm, so so
0: what you what doing? you're saying is a little favoritism was played here. He was a cop, there were cops. They took his side. They didn't even bother too much to see the evidence. That, you know, there was no blood. If you would have done that, there would have been blood all over you. I mean, I, oh, I mean, it I mean it, it, to, me, to me, it's unbelievable that they could have gotten this so wrong. But I'm going to say something here. Now, obviously, he had a mental illness. He was either a psychopath, a sociopath, a narcissistic personal, personality disorder, or borderline personality He had a disorder of some kind to even do that. And to want wanted, and he wanted to further his narrative in order to make you look bad because that's what these kind of mentally ill people do, and they're very good at it.
1: They that's very very interesting. I I don't mean to interrupt you, but I do want to stop you because the reason we had to get separated is I had his daughter Baker acted, which is when you're on suicide watch and you're a danger to yourself and. I had moved, had her moved in because she tried committing suicide back when she lived in Tulsa, and I wanted to save her because I'm a savior. And when she lived with us for about three months, I found all these a lot of things that led to suicide. And I was like, "We're Baker acting. We're putting her in the hospital." And when we walked her into the hospital with an officer, she turned to her father and she said, "You know what, Dad? I'm going to say you did something, and you're going to go to jail."
0: Oh, so this this was a pattern they had.
1: Oppositional defiant disorder is what they call it. Mm. So I do something bad, but you're the one who's going to get in trouble because I'm going to say you did something first. And that's exactly the pattern of what he did. And it's a learned behavior, by the way.
0: Well, sometimes it's a learned behavior. Usually it is, I would say. It's manipulative. It's deceptive. And there's something lacking in their energy or soul, a sense of empathy. So they really only know how to achieve their own goal, and they don't really care who gets hurt in the interim. So so I'm going to say it was something like that. We're not trying to diagnose, but we know there's something very wrong in this whole pattern. So Mm -hmm. um, how did your day-to-day life change during the oh pendency, gosh. during the, and that's a big word, you might want to explain that to the people, pendency so of the, your the, case.
1: So the pendency, so I was in jail 14 hours, and the father of my children, children. my nice little uh, New York husband, he actually bailed me out of jail. Isn't
0: that nice? Um, you kept a, had a nice relationship with him. Because oh you had God. children with him. So that's wonderful. Yeah,
1: yeah. Him and his wife are two of my closest friends, and I spend holidays with them. And yeah, we have children, but our friendship runs much deeper than that. And it's really, I'm very, very blessed. And I'm very thankful for the things that I do have, not the ones I don't have. But what happened was after I got out of my 14 hours of jail, um, while I was in jail, My former husband had access to all of my devices and he went ahead and sent my mugshot. And the, what the charge was, which was a second degree felony, assault, uh, with a deadly weapon, one under manslaughter, if found guilty, 15 years in prison. Um, so it was a very serious charge. And my mugshot was sent to every person in my LinkedIn. All 2,267 people got a copy of my mugshot. So these are the presidents of Caldwell Banker and uh, Douglas Elliman. These are the who's who in the business. So I've been in the business now 24 years. Mm. And it's a very, very vicious business and difficult business. And, you know, my reputation had been stellar. I had to go to my clients. I started my own company two weeks After they hired me, this is when the incident happened, I had to go to them because my motto has always been people who have nothing to hide, hide nothing. Absolutely. um,
0: Yes. Mm
1: -hmm. So I went to them and I said, listen, something happened. The day I told you I had to go out of town, I was actually in jail. I didn't do this, but this is your project. This is your integrity. This is your, you know, I don't want to taint anything, but I do want to let you know this happened so you don't hear it from somebody else because I have nothing to hide. And they said, Amy, you know, just by telling us that, that's all we need to know about your character. And they kept me on. And at that point, you know, I knew that I was just going, there's nothing I could do. So I chose, I chose to stand in front of it. I didn't call anybody on my LinkedIn. I didn't respond to people. I heard people talking about me. It was a perfect opportunity to really just talk about me. And I decided that, my own success would be my greatest revenge, and so I used to be, you know, featured in a lot of different things. Because I've been around a long time. Well, this time I said, this project is going to be so in his face, my ex-husband. Nobody's going to tear me down, and my own success would be my best revenge. But the irony of the whole thing, though, was during the day I'd go to a marketing meeting, and right after I'd go to a calendar call. So. It was it was such a vastly different life. I mean, it, it was it, it was like you're going to a black tie gala and then you're going to a picnic in the park with hot dogs and hamburgers. It was just you know so vastly different, and it, it just it reminded me constantly. And, and every night I go home and be I spy, and mm. I took a polygraph, and that's really what it came down to
0: the yeah, So Yeah, that saved you. That that was because it was the truth. You were just telling the truth.
1: There were so many holes in the story. There were so many things that didn't make any sense. I mean, the polygraph definitely did a lot. And my lawyer said, "You'll take a polygraph." I go, "Well, I didn't do anything." I mean, I I, (laughs) yes. and I did that, and at the end of the day, the state asked for a copy of the polygraph, and the state concurred that I didn't do this.
0: Okay. So, you know me. We... All right, Amy. If you could say one, only one thing to our listeners who may know someone or be going through a similar situation, what would you say to them? One thing.
1: There are, are places to go get help. I would encourage you to not feel defeated and don't be ashamed of what's happened to you. Stand in front of it. Own it. Don't let it define you.
0: Excellent. You know, I recently interviewed Susan Sparks, the author of Sparks in Love, who lived through domestic abuse, and she offered this suggestion throughout her book, Strength, Support, plan and freedom so it's pretty much what you just said also and I, I like to think that nothing is bad or good we talked about this early on in the show only experience is to ultimately remember we may have chosen this life and the challenges we would have for our soul to expand so we might experience greater love in all forms, and greater compassion through all the challenges. In my book, The Living Spirit, in reference to this thought, I wrote, it is possible with practice to recognize negative thoughts and experiences and dismiss them. At the same time, it is understood that there will always be people who choose to hide from their problems, whether out of fear, ignorance, or simply not knowing an alternative way. Perhaps they feel the darkness around them because others have acted towards them inappropriately and harmfully. They may believe that keeping secrets and avoiding change will shield them from issues they can face at the present time. In actuality, only going towards the light and full truth can bring peace, harmony, balance, and the end of suffering." as we cannot change the way anyone thinks or acts, even those that we love the most, we can change our way of interacting with them. And this is an important soul discovery for each of us, regardless of our race, religion, or socioeconomic status. So I want to thank you, Amy Ballin, author of Fabulous Deframed, for sharing your unique experience and what you have learned about the justice system, domestic abuse, and violence, and how we may, and really must, come to understand the dangerous and sick people who cause so many problems for people who are unable at times to even imagine this degree of control and disruption by one person for another, often for no legitimate reasons. To purchase this eye-opening book to a topic that needs greater illumination, go to amyballon.com or amazon.com. In summarizing today's episode of Healing From Within, we have talked about a frightening subject, that of being accused and imprisoned for false accusations. How can we begin to change the dynamics in a society and culture that has, over the last 20 years, been radically changed by social media and law enforcement uh, that have been devalued by government and have at times lost their ability to act the way that should be expected, uh, but they're often unable due to laws that are not right? Why would we arrest anyone on the basis of someone else's accusation? How do we know if they're telling the truth or it's another agenda at play? There must be due process and evidence at the time of an arrest. The person making the accusation must be able to prove it beyond the shadow of a doubt, and other people must be questioned as well before the arrest. In the case of domestic abuse or violence, sometimes there is physical proof of the incident, and both people need to receive treatment and counseling. Of course, the person should be removed from the home for a time if possible, so there is no further escalation of the abuse. It is a difficult and challenging task for law officials to handle, as often this is an ongoing problem and there are many emotional or mental problems. We must continue to shine light and remove shame, guilt, and blame from the problem of domestic abuse and focus on the health issues, economic, and mental challenges that have created this dysfunction in the first place amy and i would have you remember that in the end you will remember the best parts of yourself and life and move past the wounds and trauma of being involved in any negative hurtful experience and you will not be the victim but the survivor i am cheryl glick host of healing from within and invite you to visit my website cherylglick.com to read about and listen to leaders in the field of metaphysics science spirituality law medicine psychology the arts and music indeed all walks of life as we learn ways to improve our understanding of human nature and our divine resources shows may also be heard on dreamvision7radio.com and webtalkradio.net thank you